so I think Italy is, to a large degree, in, in my opinion, a post-democracy in this sense. To you who have been born in Italy, God has allotted, as if favoring you specially, the best defined country in Europe. Those words were written by Giuseppe Mazzini in his essay, Duties of Country. Mazzini believed that Italy was united by geography and language, and that through unification, Italians would gain the power to improve their economic and social conditions. Today, Italians are united by language and geography, but they are dissatisfied and disillusioned with their politics. The recent elections saw the lowest turnout of any Italian election, and the victory of the Fratelli d'Italia, led by Giorgia Maloney was poised to become the next Italian Prime Minister and the first woman to hold that position. Centrists and Social Democrats in Italy spent the campaign warning of the dangers of a right-wing coalition led by Maloney and accused her and her party of having fascist sympathies. This week, we spoke to Alessandra Bocci, a journalist, and Thomas Fazi, a writer for Unheard, about what the right-wing coalition will do in government, the fascist accusations against Maloney in the Fratelli d'Italia, the future of the Italian left, and the legacy of Mario Draghi, the outgoing Prime Minister. For our Patreon subscribers, there is an extended conversation on Italy's relationship with the European Union. We hope you enjoy this episode, and don't forget to subscribe for the full extended conversation. So, thank you very much to Thomas Fatzi and Alessandra Bocchi for joining us for this conversation on the Tan election result that came in late last night for us, uh, Wednesday for you now when we are going to release this. So the headline is, the big headline grabber is the right triumph. Um, but among all the commentaries about the alleged return on fascism, I think more substantially the question should be, how can we explain this right-wing surge in Italy? Has Italy become a right-wing country over the past four or five years? Um, is it only kind of a tactical result with the electoral system favouring the, the broad right-wing coalition between Berlusconi, Salvini and Meloni? Or is it just maybe perhaps that the Italians want something new, anything new? Well, yeah, I think it's the last point you touched. I think that's the that's really the crucial point. Um, it's uh, it's easy to look at uh, so, uh, Meloni's uh, victory and to, to think that, you know, Italy is uh, shifting to the right as a lot of uh, analysts and a lot of commentators um, are saying, <clears throat> in fact, uh, you know, let, let's start with, I mean, everyone's talking about, you know, this great success that she's had. All right. Um, in fact, I mean, if we look at the, uh, at the numbers, um, you know, she won 26% of the votes. Uh, of course, that's a huge increase from the 4.4% that she had just four years ago in the last national elections in 2018. Um, so clearly, you know, Maloney has done a good job in, uh, boosting support for her party. Um, but I think it's uh, to understand, you know, the kind of underlying shifts in Italian society. It's, uh, it's important to ask ourselves, where are those votes uh, coming from? Um, so if we look, for example, I mean, <clears throat> first of all, yes, take, let's take the percentage, 26%. That's a big percentage. But it's, uh, it's, it's not much compared to what the Five Star Movement got four years ago, you know, almost 33%. Um, so, you know, again, we see that, yes, clearly she's got a lot of support, but she's got way less support than the Five Star Movement had. Just um, just four years ago, um, but I think even more interestingly, if we look at overall, I mean, percentages don't really give us a clear, um, I think, picture of what's going on here. Um, I think overall numbers are much more interesting. So, if we look at, for example, um, 
the, uh, the overall uh, votes that the center-right coalition got uh, this time around. So that's the Meloni's Brothers of Italy, Salvini's Lega, and Berlusconi's Forza Italia. Um, they collectively won pretty much the same number of votes that they won in 2018. So just over 12 million votes. Um, so again, we don't see a huge shift to the right. You know, if we look at the coalition, uh, center-right coalition as a whole, uh, pretty much almost the exact number of votes they got four years ago. Um, so clearly, you know, that's already enough, I think, to uh, to understand that, 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 you know, there's not much of a right-wing shift uh, going on in terms of, uh, you know, Italians' um, voting uh, preferences. Uh, so what, what, what we're witnessing really is pretty much a reshuffling of votes within the center-right coalition and among center-right parties. So what, you know, what Maloney has done is that she's bled a huge number of votes, not so much from other parties, um, uh, not so, definitely not from the, um, you know, the, 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 the non-voters, which is, you know, something we'll probably you know, be talking about, uh, but mostly from other parties. So mostly from the Liga and from Forza Italia. Uh, so that's really what's going on here. Um, now, you know, these votes having shifted from, what could be considered a slightly more moderate party like Forza Italia to Brothers of Italy to Maloney. Uh, does that in, indicate, you know, a kind of a radicalization of this electorate? Um, I don't think so, uh, frankly. And, uh, uh, you know, you know, the Lega could be seen as just as radical and, in fact, maybe more radical in or at least, you know, what, what the, Liga, the Lega used to be in 2018, you know, with its strong Eurosceptical um, anti-Euro rhetoric. Um, in many ways, that was a much more populist party than Maloney uh, is, which in many respects is actually, you know, more moderate, especially when it comes to kind of the big macroeconomic issues and especially when it comes to the EU than, uh, than the Liga uh, was. So uh, so I think really it's that, um, it's that you know, voters, the centre-right voters really didn't see see that they had much of a choice, um, really. Uh, you know, the Lega, for a number of reasons, uh, Salvini, for a number of reasons, has uh, really lost credibility in the eyes of a lot of centre-right voters. Uh, Berlusconi is seen kind of a bit as, you know, as a bit of a dead horse in the eyes of, in the eyes of many. So, um, so really, I think it shouldn't be seen as a vote so much for Maloney. Uh, really, um, or, or, or for anything that Maloney represents, let's put it that way. Um, I think it really is, you know, a vote that is born out of, a, of what is seen as a, a lack of alternatives. You know, this idea that you know it's just her turn now. Uh, but but you know, but I think that you know the, ma- the major point that I think people need to understand is that this is a reshuffling within center right uh, votes. Um, she hasn't. I mean, and, and interestingly, the same goes for the, you know, the, the Partito Democratico, kind of centrist, you know, neoliberal uh, um, party, uh, which also got more or less the same votes that it got uh, four years ago. Slightly less, but not that much. So what we have is two, two major blocks, the center-right block and, the, you know, nominally center-left block, um, which have really kind of, con- which have a consolidated base, which has more or less remained, I would say, largely unchanged uh, since 2018. The big change is the, the massive drop in the in the votes for the five star movement, which lost six, you know, six and a half million votes um, just over four years. Um, and, and in fact, six million votes is more or less the difference in votes uh, you know, between the 2018 elections and these elections. So what we have really is just, I mean, the only real difference compared to 2018 is the huge number of voters that, you know, had placed their hopes in the five-star movement and uh, have abandoned that party without finding an alternative, uh, not even in, um, in Maloney's party. So, um, Alessandro, is, is this just simply a case of um, disillusion and the Italian electorate finding the next toy it has to express its dissatisfaction? Or is there so partly a kind of... Um, more substantial right-wing shift also down there somewhere? 
I think both. They're not mutually exclusive. I mean, uh, uh, Thomas is definitely correct uh, in analyzing the electoral results. I mean, compared to 2018, uh, the center-right coalition has now 44% approximately, and in 2018, it had some, somewhere around 37.5%. So it's not a significant change. Um, however, it is significant that Giorgio Meloni's party went from having 4% or 5%, which was barely enough to be represented in parliament, to now having 26%. That's a huge surge. And yes, she was the only party in the opposition. So, of course, uh, it was very easy for voters to who were dissatisfied to say, OK, who do we vote for if we're not happy with how things are going? And they're going to vote for her. But also, there, there I think they were comfortable enough voting for her. Uh, whereas uh, I spoke to many people who previously said, you know, she's too right wing. I feel uncomfortable with her, uh, the fascist roots of her party to now being comfortable voting for her. And it, it's, it's not that much of an issue anymore. So I think both of those. Uh, Thomas, Thomas, you want something to say about this? Yeah, no, just, just very briefly. I mean, I think, yeah, Alessandra definitely has, has a point there. I think um, just, just two very brief points. Um, well, firstly, I would say that um, it's true that a lot of people, you know, saw Maloney as being too radical maybe some years ago and they don't, you know, uh, see it that way anymore. I think that's also part of the fact that Maloney has, you know, kind of normalized uh, her, you know, um, her position a lot. And we know that she's, you know, pledged allegiance based, you know, in quite explicit, uh, in a quite, quite an explicit manner, you know, towards the European Union, towards the US, NATO, uh, transatlantic, um, Euro Atlantic, Atlantic Alliance, um, and, uh, and, and has really gone out of a way to kind of present herself as this responsible pro-establishment um, figure. So I think uh, that's also, you know, uh, that I think that also plays an important role. Uh, I think that a lot of people have feel more have felt more comfortable voting for her, also because they they do see her as you know much much less radical than than she was just just a few years back. And uh, and yes, of course, I think um, it was a vote against the kind of draggy uh, coalition uh, to a large degree. That's 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 definitely true. Um, but again, I think it was it, it it was mostly voters from the center right that. Um, that, that you know, that, as I said earlier, um, you know, turn towards her. I mean, so it's so it's those more, even more moderate centre right voters, so even Forza Italia voters, that clearly even they weren't happy with Draghi's kind of, I would say, you know, techno authoritarian uh, approach to government. Yeah. But I think it's also important to note that this wasn't enough. That you know, even if, even the fact that she was the only party in opposition, uh, the numbers clearly show that that wasn't enough to capture the vote of Italy's, you know more angry and more disillusioned underclasses yeah. that um, previously voted for the five-star. No, I was just going to say, I, I completely agree with that. Um, and But we also don't know where the reshuffling, whether there's just been a reshuffling of votes or whether some votes came from other parties like the five-star movement, who's that which has halved its, its electoral successes from 2018. So I think that's significant as well. Yeah, uh, just sort of to bring up on this. So, Alessandra, we've talked a little bit about the right so far. But what about the state of the opposition? Um, the Enrico Letta has already resigned following the defeat in the election yesterday. What's next for the party Democratia and also for the movement Five Stars after this election result? Well, I think the five star movement just relies on its promises of a universal basic income, which is especially attractive in the South, where it has most of its support. 
uh, the PD government is essentially just an establishment uh, safe vote, so to speak. It's just the vote that people give when they're too scared of the alternatives. Um, it's not really representative of anything hmm. more than being pro-EU, pro, you know, neoliberalism, sort of uh, moderate neoconservative agenda abroad. It, it doesn't really represent anything significant. And the Five Star Movement is what was born so, so much as a radical party that it en ended up not really standing up for anything at all. Um, so that's, I would say, the state of the opposition. But maybe Thomas has something to add as well. <laughs> Uh, no, I mean, I, I can only agree with, uh, you know, this very bleak assessment of, uh, of the opposition. I mean, as, uh, uh, you know, as someone that comes from the left, I, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm even, you know, I find I, I'm, I'm not very easy even considering the, you know, Partito Democratico, the PD, a, you know, even a center left party. As Alessandra said, I mean, there's hardly anything, uh, you know, left about, <clears throat> about the PD. It really is a totally, you know, pro-establishment, pro-globalization, pro-EU, um, pro-status quo in every sense of the word uh, party. And so it's, uh, it's, it's hardly surprising that, you know, it's, uh, it's been, you know, com you know it, 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 it fails to gain traction amongst, you know, the, the working classes and uh, the lower income classes. In fact, uh, you know, the PD's trajectory is similar to the trajectory of a lot of, you know, other nominally centre-left or social democratic or you know, labour uh, parties uh, in, in, in other European countries where you see you have this kind of, rat, you know, complete overturning of what were traditional party allegiances. So you have uh, basically centre-left parties that increasingly um, cater almost exclusively to the well-educated, the um, the urbanite, uh, young um, middle classes, uh, and are you know progressively abandoned by the working classes, and you have you know uh, centre-right or conservative parties that increasingly uh, capture the vote of the working classes, and uh, to 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 a certain degree. Uh, you know, um, the same thing, you know, we see the same thing here in Italy, you know, with Maloney and, and the PD. So if we look at, um, you know, uh, kind of dem the demographics of the vote, uh, you know, we can clearly see that, that Maloney does um, does capture a, a greater part of the working class vote uh, than, than the PD. The PD, you know, hardly captures any of uh, any, you know, any of those votes at all um, anymore. So, uh, so there really isn't a you know a left opposition in the traditional sense of the word. I mean, I would even argue that you know even the, these terms don't aren't even helpful anymore in understanding kind of in, in maneuvering our, our new political realities because they really have no. Uh, they're totally unhinged from what were the traditional meanings of these words. You know, right, <clears throat> right, and left. I mean, in many respects. Um, a lot of right-wing parties have kind of more, you know, uh, pro-labor um, proposals and a more pro-labor agenda um, in, than, than, than nominally center-left parties. I mean, not so much Maloney, which is, you know, very conservative when it comes to uh, economic policies. But, you know, if you look at Le Pen and other parties, so there's definitely this kind of left-right inversion that is happening uh, all over Europe, um, including in, in, in Italy. And, and for the five, as, far, as far as Five Star is concerned, I mean... Uh, uh, it'll be very hard, I think, to win back, you know, um, mo most of the votes they've lost. I mean, Conte has tried to kind of, you know, uh, regain part of that anti-establishment veneer. But, uh, but of course, it's for most voters, it's too little too late. A lot of, you know, it's quite clear that uh, for now to reclaim the kind of original anti-establishment roots of the five star after, you know, having supported, having first governed with the PD and then having supported the embodiment of the establishment, which is, of course, Mario Draghi. Uh, for a lot of voters, that's too much to digest. And I think it'll be hard to kind of turn that around.
No, I just wanted to add, I think there are a few, I wouldn't define them as left-wing necessarily, but certainly for the Anglo world that uh, believes, uh, I mean, the British Conservative Party is essentially a party of free market fundamentalism. So if they looked at Georgia Meloni's program, where she has, her first point is on uh, uh, incentivizing families to have children by using the power of the state. And uh, another one is um, she she's pro-environment. She's pro-regulations uh, on the environment. That was another chapter. Uh, so she does have certain positions that are more left-wing. Another one was was called uh, the the social state, lo stato sociale, which means protecting the most vulnerable and giving benefits to the most vulnerable, but staying away from the five-star movement's uh, universal basic income, which would essentially give everyone uh, an income every month, irrespective of whether they have the potential to be able to work or not. So she does have some positions that, I, I would say in, in the Anglo world are considered left-wing. Yeah, but there's elements of kind of um, Hungarian right-wing ideology here and there sprinkled. Um, but I think what's interesting about the, especially from, from the outside looking in the Italian election, what seemed to be the only conversation was post-fascism, neo-fascism, mm -hmm. fascism, it's basically the only conversation that I've been reading on the Italian election. And there's been a lot of these labels thrown around um, to describe Meloni's uh, background, her roots, her program. So let's let's try and break it down. What are the Fratelli's historical ties to the remnants of fascist ideology? Um, is, and is it simply a case that a party has a problematic history? Or is Fratelli d'Italia a bit more than just a traditional conservative movement, starting with Alessandra? Well, it's certainly true that, thank you for giving me this very hard button question <laughs> to answer first. Yeah. No, it's, uh, <laughs> Good luck. it's certainly true that uh, Fratelli d'Italia, Giorgio Meloni's party, has fascist roots. I mean, it the flame, which is uh, the symbol and the stem of mm. the... Uh, party originates from the Movimento Sociale Italiano, which was a post-fascist movement with, you know, uh, former fascists who w wanted to uh, rebrand or somehow maintain their their relevance in the political sphere. Uh, so it's a d it definitely has fascist roots. That being said, it doesn't mean that it's still a fascist party to this day, and it, it's sort of hard in this. Uh, media landscape where everything is binary and you're either a fascist or an anti-fascist to make that sort of nuanced argument. But she has changed in many of her positions. For example, it's it, the Italian right wing in its more radical form has always been profoundly anti-American in its foreign policy and anti-Israel. And uh, Dr. Meloni has, as Thomas said, completely pivoted in, in that sense. And she essentially now has uh, uh, almost a no conservative foreign policy and she's pro you know the American empire and uh, she's pro NATO and uh, she's even in favor of sanctions on Russia which is going to be an, an issue that will be difficult for her to defend uh, this winter when you know the energy prices will skyrocket in Italy and the country is already in a dire economic state so that's just one example of how her views have evolved. And it's it's just, it doesn't make sense anymore to define her as a fascist today. But her party does have fascist roots at the same time. Okay, well, thanks. That was a pretty good answer to a tricky question. Um, um, but on this, Thomas, and also maybe perhaps on the way the, um, the concept of fascism has been wielded in the campaign, especially on the left, 
is the accusation of fascism, um, or especially the accusation that Maloney is a fascist uh, in the fascist party, that accusation still wield power? Does it still, you know, create some some fear that the the Duce could be back at any, any corner, or is this kind of a bit of a, a tired label? Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think it's uh, it really it's kind of you know I think the same same thing goes for the term fascism as uh, as goes for terms like right and left. I mean, I think there's you know these terms are thrown around all the time, but it's unclear exactly what they mean. I mean, they seem to mean you know different things to different people, and so you have uh, you know everyone everyone is calling everyone else a fascist, and so you even have people on the right now calling people on the left fascists. You know, and so I think it's it's a word that has really lost much of its meaning. I mean, I think in its tradi- in its original <laughs> historical sense um you know fascism is you know <laughs> is very much dead uh you know no one is no one is considering of uh you know of, 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 uh, you know shutting shutting down parliament and instituting a one-party dictatorship but you know in uh in italy or elsewhere for for that matter so i think uh, i would be very wary of, i mean i think you know when you use these terms too often they really lose any any you know any meaning whatsoever uh so so yes of course you know maloney's party is not fascist in in, in any you know reasonable understanding of of uh, of of the term, and uh, the problem is that uh, you know to the to the left, anything that's you know that doesn't agree with them is fascist, and so you know I think that that's part of, that's part of the problem. You know you've got you've, you know, you know we're in this cultural war, uh, you know, um, a context where you know, everything is you know. Uh, you know, ultra polarized and becomes, uh, and, and so it's enough. To, it's enough. I mean, for, for a lot of people on the left, I think Joe simply to have conservative positions on you know family and uh, national identity, and then you know and one's uh, national uh, you know roots is uh, is fascist. Uh, but of course, you know that's not you know, that's not necessarily fascist. I mean, you know, we're having conservative views of family and uh, you know placing an importance on you know uh, ide- you know ideals of the nation and of uh, uh, a country's you know uh, cultural uh, values. Is, is something that, for example, you know, the PCI, the Communist Party in Italy, attached a great importance to, you know, throughout, you know, post-war uh, history. So it's not something that's right. intrinsically, uh, intrinsically fascist. And I think a lot of people realize that. I think, you know, by throwing this word around so much, it's really lost meaning in the eyes of a lot of people. And a lot of people realize that it's become an empty, it's become an empty word. And in fact, the PD has really tried to uh, ride this kind of fascist threat narrative throughout the campaign, you know, in a very aggressive manner. And clearly the numbers show that, you know, it didn't work. It doesn't work outside of that, you know, small, uh, you know, as I said earlier, you know, upper, upper middle class, well-educated, uh, urbanite, um, segment of the voters outside of of that of that segment uh the kind of you know progressive uh mind you know progressive uh, um gang it really doesn't uh, hold any uh, any water anymore and uh, and i think the numbers uh, showed up showed up quite clearly so again you know it was a complete blunder for the pd to uh, to think that this was going to turn you know that that, that throwing around the, the fascist card was going to turn the elections around clearly that wasn't the case um j- just a bit of an interlude um comical interlude i'm not sure if you know the uh film uh filmmaker Dinesh D'Souza is kind of a crazy right-wing uh, filmmaker producer and I was thinking about it because when you're saying the, the fascist label is losing value I, I can't stop reading this tweet which is just hilarious um <laughs> if it were truly Mussolini all over again the left would be celebrating the tan results Mussolini was a Marxist and national socialist um which I don't know just kind of is incredibly I don't know just everything is wrong about this tweet but just I was thinking about everyone telling me about how the even on the right, people accusing the left of being fascist, and you know, the word has lost a lot of its uh, 
historical I significance. Think people use it nowadays essentially they mean by fascist they mean authoritarian and so it's yeah. like this word that gets thrown around to say right. even the right uses it against the left when you know progressives so tend to use authoritarian means then you're a fascist but mm -hmm. originally that's not the the meaning of yeah the, the ideology yeah so um leaving the tricky conversation on post-fascism neo-fascism and fascism um let's move to the bit of the future right now we have a government or well, not yet but we're gonna have a government between uh, forza italia between uh, lega and between fratelli um how stable is this government gonna be obviously the electoral system was made in such a way that they had really strong incentives to bind together and stick together for the campaign but do they see eye to eye on most issues beyond the kind of electoral incentives. Um, the one example that really came um, a bit to the light during the campaign was on the uh, Russia-Ukraine war, where it seems that Meloni was much more forceful in her anti-Russian stance, whereas Berlusconi and Salvini had more dovish positions, more kind of traditional right-wing positions on Italy, which is kind of more appeasement and, and, and friendly to Russia. Um, do, do you see, do you see uh, any other issues where the government could be kind of strained because of different positions um starting with alessandra i think it could be an issue of contention but not one that would make the the coalition fall apart hopefully mm -hmm. we'll survive more than six months or a year but um <laughs> yes it's definitely an issue of of, of contention because uh, Giorgio Meloni is in favor, is staunchly in favor of uh, sanctions on Russia. And yeah. one of the reasons that very few people discuss of, for this position that she adopted is that she's part of the European uh, Conservative Party in the EU Parliament, which includes Poland. So yeah. she's essentially, a, you know, a close ally of Poland. And um, Salvini, on the other hand, is part of a different party in the European Parliament, uh, that is allied with Hungary, and Hungary is mm. opposed to sanctions on Russia. And so Salvini is also opposed to sanctions on Russia. I mean, it's something that they will have to resolve. I think, um, I mean, she has the upper hand, so it might go her yeah. way anyways. Uh, but uh, it's a, certainly an issue that's, it's an issue between them and the coalition. Is it enough of an issue for the whole thing to be unstable, Thomas? Um, well, I mean, I think the uh, the inner tensions that are bound to, emer to emerge within the uh, the government coalition, um, if it you know comes about as is likely, um, I think can only be understood you know if we take a wider view of Italy's role within the European Union and the Euro. Um, you know, it, it's important I think to, to to frame the issue in the right terms, and we're not Italy as part you know as as a country that's part of the Euro. Um, clearly is much more limited in its uh, economic policy scope than a, you know, quote-unquote normal country that has its own central bank, uh, that has its own monetary so sovereignty uh, is. Uh, and I think, uh, so the tensions that will emerge, I think, will also emerge in relation to Italy's, um, you know, uh, uh, you know, relation with the European Union in, in the sense that, you know, we know the country is, as a lot of European countries, is heading for what is bound to be a very tough winter, which uh, is going to put a lot of uh, households and businesses in in a lot of trouble. And in fact, you know, uh, a lot of them already are experiencing uh, trouble with, you know, uh, surging uh, energy bills. And uh, that will require, you know, 
big amount, I mean, cushioning the effects of that crisis, of the energy crisis, will require uh, government spending. I mean, there's no, there's really no way uh, around it, you know, unless, you know, I mean, and that, that's really the only alternative to the country completely going down the drain. I mean, we're, we're talking, I mean, saving Italy, uh, a good chunk of Italy's industrial base and uh, and avoiding a lot of people from falling into, you know, complete uh, uh, poverty requires uh, a lot of money. And, uh, you know, for a, norm, for a normal country like, say, the UK, that would be, you know, relatively easy, I think, to navigate, even if, country, if the parties had different views in terms of what, you know, what's needed to be done. Um, uh, if you look at the UK, you know, even a, you know, a fiscally conservative uh, prime minister like Liz Truss has just approved, you know, a pretty big, um, pretty big budget. You know, I mean, that things are not so easy for a country like Italy. And I think if we look, for example, at the, 20, you know, the 2018 uh, Liga Five Star government, uh, a lot of the tensions emerged, not just because, you know, they had different views in terms of what needed to be done in terms of economic policy, but because, uh, you know, any kind of any more expansionary economic policy inevitably, you know, conflicts with the European union uh, and in fact you know we know that back then the liga had a more you know thought that more a higher deficit was needed and, and the five star were you know had a more conservative position and i think those those views are bound to, to re-emerge i think we know that salvini uh believes in the need for you know greater deficit spending to cushion the effects of the crisis while meloni uh, you know, in part, partly because of her economic views and partly because she wants to keep the EU uh, on, you know, on, on good terms is uh, is really kind of pushing back, you know. So I think th those are the real tensions that will emerge. I mean, the, the fact that on the one hand, the, you know, the government will need to uh, spend a lot of money to cushion the effects of the crisis. But at the same time, uh, I think the European Union will make that very hard for the government to um, to do that. And so, you know, I think the real tensions won't, won't emerge so much within, you know, the coalition. They'll emerge, you know, bet between the various parties of the coalition and the European Union. So as the Maloney, as we expect a Maloney-led government takes office... Do we expect them to have learned cautionary tales from Salvini's time in government? I'm thinking particularly about uh, immigration uh, as one priority area where they were constrained by various aspects of international law. What will be the top priorities for a Maloney government and what will they have learned from the experience of their coalition partners in government? Uh, well, I, I think, you know, what, what Maloney has learned very well is the uh, I think she's learned the lesson of the 2018 um, elections and the resulting uh, you know slap, quote unquote populist five star Liga government. Uh, she's learned that lesson very well, I think. And the lesson uh, of that government is that there's really uh, that any government that uh, attempts to challenge the kind of uh, the, the the fiscal framework framework of the European Union and you know even more so the kind of overall architecture of the European Union. Is uh, is bound to, uh, to to suffer very swift and uh, uh, harsh retaliation from the European Union, which is what happened in the case of the 2018 um, government. And I think, uh, on the one hand, I think that's a very kind of um, you know it's very telling of I think the kind of poor state of Italian democracy, where effectively, uh, regardless of who uh, is elected, ultimately it you know the shots are called by you know uh, Brussels and Frankfurt. You know, regardless of what you know what may be the party's um, electoral uh, program. Uh, so I think Italy is, to a large degree, in, in my opinion, a post-democracy in this sense. I mean, uh, a country that has almost no economic autonomy whatsoever and is effectively, uh, you know, 
uh, and, you know, conditional on the approval of the European Union for pretty much any uh, economic, any form of economic policy, I think, is uh, is something that, you know, we'd be hard pressed to, uh, to call a democracy, I think. Um, but, uh, you know, put that issue aside, I think Maloney understands this context very well. Uh, and I think she's learned that lesson very well. Uh, that was a government, you know, that came to power with very, you know, quite radical uh, um, positions and was really brought to heel very quickly by the European Union. I think that Maloney doesn't want to, you know, she, she wants to avoid that fate uh, clearly. Uh, now it's unclear, you know, how you avoid that fate, you know, by any other means other than simply going along with, you know, whatever diktats the EU um uh, issues, uh, especially when it comes to economic policy. Uh, the, you know, the, there's a clear contradiction, as I said earlier, you know, between what, what Italy needs and what the European Union uh, will allow the country to do. Uh, and I think that that will be a major problem for, for Meloni, I think, sometime, uh, you know, uh, sometime down, down the road and maybe, you know, even, you know, just a few months from here. When the when the crisis really hits this um, this winter, and I think also in terms of uh, um, other issues, not just economic policy, but you know uh, immigration and other issues, uh, you know I think the country is more constrained as, as you know as part of the European Union, especially the euro, than you know um, than, than you know quote unquote normal countries um, are, and so and so I think even those that fear you know kind of Italy slide into Hungarian kind of illiberal democracy territory, um, I think you know uh, I think they're overstating. The risk simply because um, you know uh, Italy is to a large degree into controlled administration, so to speak, and so you know uh, I think government is really very limited in terms of what of what it can do. Uh, again, you know Hungary is also not in the euro, and so of course it has much greater freedom in terms of what it can and can't do than than Italy uh, can as, as as part of the euro. Uh, yes, no, I completely agree with what Thomas said. I, I'd also add that the dependency that Italy has on the European Union has uh, worsened uh, over the past few years, especially during the coronavirus pandemic, because now it's it, it's reliant on this recovery fund and it's the largest fund in Europe that's being given to Italy. So, of course, even any, you know, remotely Eurosceptic sentiment there was before has essentially vanished now, and this is true for all the parties now in the right-wing coalition. Just a quick question on the the role of the president in Italy. Um, there had been some, we've, we've talked a little bit about the sort of post-fascist um, accusations against Maloney and her party. Mattarella was re-elected earlier this year. A presidential term is seven years, but seven years is a long time to do any job, especially that of president. Is there a, a possibility, what will Mattarella's role be in the next parliament? And is there a possibility that he resigns before the end of the seven years, do you think, Alessandra? I, I mean, it's a possibility, but who knows? And we, it's hard to tell. Thomas? Um, well, he is pretty old. So, I mean, I think there's a, there's a good chance that he might resign, you know, uh, maybe even by reasons of force majeure. But, um, uh, but I think, you know, it's not, I think... What what matters is Mattarella, Mattarella's Mattarella's role will be played in the coming weeks, uh, and it will be the same role that he played in twenty uh, in twenty eighteen. I mean, the president, even though you know a lot of you know uh, for a long time the president's, even though he has a lot of power, for a long time the president's role was largely you know um, uh, ceremonial uh, to to a large degree, and this was very much the case throughout you know kind of the, the prima repubblica, you know, so so kind of the the post war era up to ninety two and you know. 
beginning of Maastricht. Uh, now, with you know, with Italy's joining, you know, entry into the European Union and the Euro, the president role, president's role changed uh, very much. And so now, you know, formally, yes, he's the grantor and uh, you know of the constitution, but in fact, he's the grantor of Italy's international obligations. Uh, first and foremost, the European Union and uh, and NATO. Uh, that's you know that that's what the role of the president has become. So the president is kind of the you know the guard dog of uh, of, of of Italy's kind of uh, uh, supranational uh, rulers uh, here here in the country. And um, and so I think he played a very big role, for example, in 2018 in uh, you know handpicking the individual ministers and especially most notably the minister of finance, which is clearly the most important minister, uh, essentially vetoing the minister that the five star the Liga had chosen because he was considered too Eurosceptic in favor of a much more pro-establishment minister. Uh, so I think, you know, we're going to see the kind of, I think he's going to be very involved in the formation of government, making sure that all the major roles are assigned to uh, kind of safe, uh, safe, especially, you know, the, the really important ministers, uh, ministries are assigned to kind of safe, uh, safe people, and um, because the, you know, because the ministers, the ministers have to be approved by the president. I mean, the whole cabinet has to formally be approved by the president, um, and so I think he he will play a big role. I think in the in the coming weeks, and probably you know even in the early. Uh, in the early months of the presidency and kind of overseeing uh, the, um, you know, the government and making sure it doesn't kind of, st- you know, uh, stray out of line. For those who remember the very tense 2018-2019 um, period, when it looked, seemed like Salvini and Clive Starr were uh, going for a daily trench warfare against uh, Brussels, um, Meloni's tone on the EU was I think quite a stark contrast during selection. It was very non-confrontational. Um, is this a case of Meloni tactically mellowing her platform to avoid worrying the electorate and, of, of course, even also the market? Or do you think she still has, you know, kind of um, anti-EU reflexes deep down in her um, political core and she's only doing this tactically? Um, and maybe perhaps if she does pick... Um, battles with the EU. Do you think maybe she'll strategically decide to do it over immigration or rule of law or LGBT questions rather than on budgetary questions, for example, starting with Alessandra? Well, she, so again, this is a, a sort of, you see on, you know, many newspapers, social media, people saying, oh, is Italy next leaving uh, the yeah. EU? Uh, after Brexit, this seems to be like uh, almost like that's a possibility for Italy, and it, it's really not. And she's mm. she's not aspiring for uh, Italy exit or anything like that. Uh, she has criticized at the same time. She has criticized the European Union in the way that it functions. She routinely uh, calls uh, the calls out the bureaucrats uh, in Brussels. So she she has a Eurosceptic, if you like, uh, sentiment in that regard, but she does not believe in leaving the Eurozone or the European Union. Um, I think she does believe in reforming the European Union in a way that's more beneficial uh, to countries like Italy or even dissenting countries like Hungary and Poland. That's probably her objective in, in the long term. But it's not remotely close to what Britain did with Brexit. There's also, I think, one part of a question which we haven't kind of mentioned so far, which is um, Maloney's a woman. She's not only the first far-right prime minister, whatever you want to call her, she's also the first woman, well, going to be first woman prime minister. Um, how does she play this kind of, her, her fact she's a woman, how does she play politically? 
Um, and how that kind of um, impact ways you think she'll be ruling, uh, Alessandra? I think it's uh, very remarkable that she was uh, able to become not just the first uh, female prime minister in Italian history, but also she's the first female leader of a party in Italian history. So she has broken the glass ceiling in that regard. And she also comes from, it's important to point out, from a working class background. She doesn't come from, uh, you know, any sort of privileged background. She doesn't have a higher education. So in that way, she's self-educated. And if you compare her to somebody like Salvini, uh, she's far more articulate and uh, eloquent, I would say, and educated, but, but self-educated. Uh, she doesn't have a higher education. And she, I think, um, you know, Italy has still, I think, some archaic views on women. And so for her to reach that position is, like I said, impressive. Um, and uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's really remarkable. And she doesn't have any, she doesn't believe in quotas for women. She doesn't believe in, you know, helping women in, with affirmative action or any of those policies. Uh, having not, you know, benefited from those policies herself. I mean, she became prime minister through her own merits, and she probably had to work 10 times harder than her male uh, colleagues. Um, so she she has a view on women that simply, you know, women have the right to choose whether they want to be at home and take care of their children or they want to work. It's really up to them. She doesn't take a, a you know, definite position either way. Um, thanks a lot, Thomas. Thanks so much, Alessandra, for this. Uh, very in-depth and very entertaining explanation of the new state of Italian politics after this parliamentary election this weekend. Um, and to all, all our listeners, I say to you, see you next week. So, um, Alessandra Bocchi and Thomas Fadzi are both out. Um, but it was a really fascinating conversation on the Italian election and a lot, especially on the relationship between Brussels and Rome, which I think is going to be a key driving factor in the months to come. But one one question, actually, which um, I didn't quite get around to ask, but I think it's something really interesting, is Italy's capacity to be a political laboratory um, for the rest of Europe. Because when you look at the past, no, I'm not even going back for not even going to go back over the past century, but if you just focus on the last 15, 20 years, you had Silvio Berlusconi, who was basically some kind of pre-Trump right-winger right, right um, who started you know, over two decades ago. And, um, you know, kind of unique mix of TV figure, um, you know, uh, I'm a millionaire, everybody can become a millionaire kind of ethos. Um, then you also have technocratic governments, um, who handle the, a country which is no longer capable of, of governing through its traditional politicians. You also have some kind of avant-garde macronism with um, Matteo Renzi, um, we, who, who's also still around in Italian politics. We didn't talk about him, but he's still around. In, um, he did actually decently, I think, with um, his centrist parties over the weekend. Um, you had Five Star, which is a brand new political object. You know, it's a, how could you call this? It's a a UFO, a, uh, an un a UPO, an unidentified political object, which is very hard to define. Um, and then you get Salvini, which is, you know, very much the, the poster child for 
the kind of new populist right on the rise back in 2017, 2018. Um, so it's a country that seems to be very creative politically, as it also as it also shows. It, it's also a sign that it's a country that is incapable of of choosing, because the reason they're going through all these kind of different political cycles so quickly is because they're not getting any satisfaction. And so the the energy Five Star had four years ago is now completely gone because clearly there wasn't much much substance to the to the energy. Um, so yeah, it's quite interesting. It's interesting to see if we're going to get you know um, a kind of right wing wave across Europe in the next few months following um, following Meloni's success. Um, I do remember when Salvini did really well back in 2018. It, it really helped, uh, especially in France, where I thought the, the national rally was really trying to surf on the coattails of Salvini's successes on the other side of the Alps. Yes, it's interesting. Italy does always seem to offer a template for other countries, or at least offer a glimpse into the future of what electoral politics might look like. And there are quite a few elections coming up next year um, in Europe where we might see a similar model of that right-wing coalition essentially being dominated by the national conservative party in the country. Uh, Czech Republic has a presidential election in early January. Um, Denmark has an election next year. There's some state elections in Germany as well, which will be very interesting to watch, especially given the uh, struggles that have been facing that country. Uh, And then Spain at the end of next year as well. So lots of interesting things that Italy could pave the way for. Maloney has already been held up by some conservative commentators as a potential model for how to take the populist strands of the national conservative movement and apply a technocratic sheen, I guess, to it. Uh, Unlike with Salvini, who had spent some time in government but couldn't get anything done, there's a perception about Maloney that she might actually be able to deliver on some of the promises that she's making, uh, or at least amongst those who have voted for her and the Fratelli d'Italia. Well, I don't want to. I don't want to lean too much into that, in part because you know one of the things that Thomas Fazi pointed out towards the end of our conversation was the low turnout, uh, which is of course indicative of a wider dissatisfaction in Italian politics that really we've seen across. Uh, much of Western democracy. Yeah, yeah, and um, Julian is referring to the, 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 the second part of the interview, which is only available to our patron subscribers, where we kind of um, delve more deeply in the kind of question of um, EU politics and, 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 you know, the question that Thomas provocatively arises is, is Italy still a democracy or is it an appendage of a EU empire? Um, but the paradox, of course, here is, I mean, I'm not going to, I think it's, it's a conversation itself about you know, the uh, democratic deficit and so on. So I'm not going to go into that com- conversation today. But um, again, you know, the paradox is Thomas has this kind of very bleak portrayal of EU politics in Italy. But in reality, you know, if when asked to vote, the Italians decided to vote for, you know, moderate parties or parties which have considerably moderated their stance on the EU. Now, the answer Thomas will give us is yes, but participation has dropped because Italians have lost all hope. Um, fair enough. But when you look at polls on like on you on the EU, um, uh, I have it right here. 72% of voters want to look to Europe with confidence and the same percentage believe it is right to remain 
in the European Union. I mean, it's, it's not a complete plebiscite, but that's a pretty strong, pretty strong number right here. Um, now, I think the case you know, the Eurosceptics could also make is, well, you know, they don't realize that the EU is limiting their democratic option. But then it's, you're kind of making a, a strange argument of saying the the democratic democratic body of Italy does not know it is no longer dem- democratic, you know. Um, so, yeah, I thought that's kind of an um, interesting conversation. I mean, it's definitely a conversation you guys should, should tune in. There's a, um, a real question about Italy and its capacity to 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 govern itself um given its financial situation and the pushback it's been getting from from brussels but yeah yeah. i mean i think whenever whenever we have this conversation about the relationship between sort of national conservative politicians and bureaucrats in brussels it sort of glosses over uh, legitimate policy considerations that some of these parties have on a domestic level. So I think, you know, one that we could easily point to is immigration as a, as a common flashpoint. Uh, it's been seven years now since the migration crisis really seized the headlines across Europe. We're still waiting for an EU, a joint EU solution. So when, you know, when the Italian, uh, when the Fratelli d'Italia and, you know, when Salvini and the Lega propose um, policies such as a naval blockade of the Mediterranean. It's easy for people to sort of roll their eyes and say, well, that's not practical. But what is the Brussels solution? They've had seven years and we still haven't seen it. And I'm sure Italians would be all ears to any policy solution on that level. So in terms of the contentious relationship, I think it's easy to say, okay, they might want to challenge Brussels in certain areas and reclaim sovereignty on certain areas. But Brussels has to understand that if they want to be playing a role in sort of binding a European political community together on a number of different policy topics, they actually have to put forward some policy ideas. And, you know, if you want to be optimistic about this, uh, Maloney in blending some of that nationalist and populist rhetoric with uh, overtures towards a more conciliatory approach to foreign policy um, than, say, Salvini or Berlusconi would offer, um, is potentially offering a chance for Brussels to reach out and maybe make some progress on these key issues. I want to um, actually want to talk a little bit about Hungary here because I think it's relevant. Um, the issue I had with the fight Brussels was picking with Hungary is that it seemed to be kind of a medley of legitimate concerns, especially on corruption and rule of law, and political concerns which should really be up to uh, national governments. You were having the same same lot of criticism, saying Orbán is corrupt. His buddies are getting his cronies are getting all the money and all the, all the uh, contracts. And at the same time, they'd be saying, "Oh, he doesn't like immigration, and he's more conservative on LGBT rights, for example." And I'm like, "This is not the right strategy. You, you, if you really want to hammer him, hammer him on things that even people on the right will be squeamish about, which is you know corruption, rule of law, and so on." The reason I think um, the reason I was, I was bringing it up um, with Italy is it seems that a lot a lot of the criticism late well take the question of immigration question of immigration is really the gift that keeps giving for for traditional conservative parties but also increasingly to populist nationalist parties and that's really an issue that um i mean like i understand the eu has a kind of more multicultural international identity but at some point if you're actually going to be serious about tackling the issue of of the rising populist party and rising nationalist parties, surely at some point you have to do that job on immigration. Otherwise, much more unsavory parties will do it instead of you. And I think that's the entire issue at this point. 
we saw in, in, in Sweden, we saw in Italy, um, uh, Thomas might argue there isn't a profound right-wing shift on immigration, on other issues, but it seems to me that um, a lot of the conversation going on in Italy was about, you know, uh, migrants, about immigration, about insecurity and so on. And at some point, at some point it feels like it's, it's the, you know, the kind of multicultural um, uh, left is playing with, with, with its hands tied. It's not realizing it's giving kind of golden electoral goose to, to the right to win over and over again. And the solution they're trying to will for a long time is calling, calling these parties, you know, uh, fascist or some kind of allusion to Nazism. And clearly that's no longer working. Um, you know, boy, boy cried wolf. Um, it's no longer working, no longer has its power. And it's a real issue because, um, you know, when, when some really unsavory things are going on, those words no longer have a power they should have. Um, and it kind of raises the question of how, as a left-wing party, do you fight against uh, Meloni? Do you fight against Le Pen? Um, do you have to um, ape them on, on those issues, on immigration, on security? Or do you have to find a new a new uh, model? And I, I don't think that new model is clear. Yes, and I, th I think you know you're seeing this pattern across Europe of the attempt to demonize any of these nationalist parties as either a fascist or a racist party, or harkening back to uh, the Nazis, uh, depending on where in Europe you are, um, has had the it has worked for a time. But as faith in establishment parties has eroded due to cascading crises over the last couple of decades, then the label doesn't work because on a basic level, the population is looking for competent governments who deliver results on the things that they actually care about. And, you know, we hear Maloney's speeches talking about how she's against gender ideology, but she's pro-family. Now, if you're a columnist in the New York Times, you're hearing that as an assault on um, potentially on abortion rights or on LGBT uh, rights. But if you're just a voter in Italy, you're thinking that might just mean support for tax credits for families or an encouraging or supporting the, the nuclear family. Um, on a basic level, you know, as a population, that's a message you can grasp with. But the centre-left, I won't just say centre-left, I'll say political establishment parties in Europe seem not to recognize that their inability to offer a simple message that is accessible um, and instead resorting to demonization of a simple accessible message is in fact bolstering some of these other parties yeah and it's also a one trick pony at some point it doesn't work um i mean there's only so many times that you can be worried about this kind of unique threat to democracy before people think okay well that's you're not serious there can't be this kind of unique threat to democracy every every fortnight um and i think if you flip the conversation to the right there's slightly a different different issue there which is traditional establishment center-right parties are kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place because on, on one on one part you know one hand clearly the energy comes from this kind of new um nationalist populist parties um, who are driving the conversation, driving the, the, the agenda. And, and you could decide to cut yourself, you know, build a um, Hadrian's wall between you and those parties and decide you have nothing to do in common, but electorally that's kind of complicated. But on the other hand, and this is what happened to Berlusconi and also to Salvini to a lesser extent, if you decide to put your, your, your fate with them, 
uh, your risk of becoming completely marginalized in the in the in the junior partner in the kind of larger coalition. Um, so it's not easy. I mean, you, you have a choice between being, um, you know, sticking to your principles and considering you have nothing to do with the far right, and but then kind of also no longer being in power and shape the conversation and shape um, the country's policies. On the other hand, you have a risk of being completely irrelevant because you, you you got dominated by this new force. On the other hand, some some countries, some right wing um, parties have managed to do this. Um, Sebastian Kurz in Austria um, has kind of very tactfully managed to include the far right in his government, but also kind of siphon off their energy um, quite quite tactfully, quite masterfully. Um, it doesn't always work. It, it seems to have slightly backfired in in Sweden. Um, and it seems to have slightly backfired in Italy for those kind of traditional centre-right parties. It's not an easy conversation for Yeah, me. and you know, there, was a, there was a column in, I think, by Charlemagne in The Economist a couple of weeks ago um, that talked about how treating some of these parties as untouchables has actually deepened their electoral mystique and that bringing them into government and removing that sort of cordon sanitaire has in some ways exposed the fact that rhetoric doesn't translate into actions. And, you know, if we're talking about how voters want concrete actions on core issues to them, uh, immigration is one that we've mentioned, but we could also talk about cost of living as another, you know, coming into government, suddenly it's your responsibility. We saw that with Lega when they were in government with the Five Star Movement. Some of their credibility dissipated, and that's why the Fratelli were able to emerge, because they weren't able to deliver in government. So if you're a... Yeah, yeah. And if, if you're a centre-right government, in some ways, you're looking at these examples and thinking, well, normally I would get diplomatic reprisals for entering government, as Austria did for back in 2000, when they were the first to do it, for entering government with sort of the fringe parties. But when they fail in government, you are the voice of sort of competent conservatism and you can co-opt some of their popular parties, but sort of moving late into the game as Forza Italia did um, you become a, you're, you're an outsider on political turf that is well trodden by outsider parties. Um, so I think you know the attempt to embrace the policy positions isn't necessarily a winning recipe if you're an establishment conservative party. Bringing them into government might be your only way of reestablishing yourself as the the competent face of conservatism. Well, I think that's going to be a, a wrap for today. Thank you so much for all of you for tuning in on this for this podcast on the Italian elections. Um, again, a reminder that you can listen to the full episode by subscribing to our Patreon. Um, you can do it for as little as five uh, euros, uh, sorry, five dollars a month. Um, but you can get even more bang for your buck if you pay ten a month and join us for a weekly book, uh, sorry, monthly book club, and you'll get a free PDF every month. And it will be, it'll be a great opportunity for us to have a great time together and, and talk about the latest book on European history, politics, culture, whatever. Um, great. Um, thanks a lot, Julian. And uh, again, thanks to Alessandra and Thomas for coming on the show. And uh, to everyone, I say to you, see you next week. Take care.